It's good to be together and to celebrate uh, together the coming of our Savior, which is the focus of our worship, the presence of God with us and the presence of God not only uh, in his arrival, but in the finished work of Jesus, the saving work that God has sent him to do. And as we look uh, at, as we open this service, I'd like us to have uh, this responsive call to worship, which you'll know comes from Matthew chapter 1. We've been spending time in Matthew in these recent days. And we'll read the bold parts together there of this responsive call to worship in your bulletins. It says, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Let's sing together. We're going to open with two songs, number 299 and then 298. We'll sing these two songs as we open our service together, 299 and 298, all the stages.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth and the joy of these words that we have sung, that you keep your promises and that you have sent Jesus to be the true deliverer and savior from our sins, so that where our prospect was truly dark and where our sins had provoked your anger and the curse and even death, you have sent for mercy and not for our harm. And you have sent to lift those burdens and not to strike a blow. So that it says in your word uh, that your redeemer has come. And the light to those who were lost in darkness. And the one who fills us where we were empty. These kinds of promises and this word of good news is the celebration of our lives. So Lord, we thank you for this time of worship and the opportunity to sing your praise and to rejoice together uh, in a service that's full of that gladness and full of joy, joy that you have proclaimed and joy that you have purchased through the blood of your son, Jesus Christ, who you sent as the true redeemer and the sacrifice for all of our sins. So encourage us, Lord, illumine us and bless us through Jesus, who is our savior now and forever. Amen. Congregation, uh, as we uh, come into God's presence and hear his greeting, may the grace of Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with and abide with you all. All God's people said, amen. Well, we welcome everyone to worship. I invite you to be seated. And you can open the back of your Trinity Psalter hymnals to the Heidelberg Catechism, page 876 and 877. We want to look at questions 29 and 31. Just related to the work that we've been doing in the Gospel of Matthew in these recent days, we spent some time dwelling on these thoughts, the, the sort of titles and names that God has given for the Messiah that he sent. And we'll look at Lord's Day 11, question 29. This is page 876 in the back of our Trinity Psalter hymnals. Listen carefully. It says... Why is the Son of God called Jesus, meaning Savior? Because he saves us from our sins and because salvation is not to be sought or found in anyone else. And then Lord's Day 12, they're dealing with this, this name, the Christ. It says, why is he called Christ, meaning anointed? The answer, because he has been ordained by God the Father and has been anointed with the Holy Spirit to be our chief prophet and teacher who fully reveals to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our deliverance and our only high priest who has delivered us by the one sacrifice of his body and who continually intercedes for us before the Father and our eternal King who governs us by his word and spirit and who guards us and keeps us in the deliverance he has won for us. So two beautiful summary ways of, of teaching uh, and sort of bringing to mind what we've been studying in the Gospel of Matthew. God sending a savior, God sending the Christ, his anointed. And we spent time this morning dwelling on Christ as king, the ruler that God has in mind to lead us in our lives. And uh, we'll carry on now in Matthew 2 in just a few moments. But let's turn our attention now to congregational prayer. 
Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, Lord, we have gathered again for worship. And as we approach, we approach with joy and with singing at what you've done for us, at the way that you have reached out to those who could offer nothing to you and to those who were empty and to those who were hungry. And you have brought satisfaction and you have brought peace into the lives of people who on their own and left to their own devices would certainly have perished. Lord, we count ourselves as those who were lost until you found us and who had no way to climb out of the darkness of our lives and the slavery of our sins until you sent a redeemer, until you sent a deliverer, until you thought of us in our need with compassion and until you reached out for us. Lord, we thank you then for Jesus, our Savior, who you long prepared as the answer to the deepest needs of our souls. And Lord, we thank you for Jesus, whom you have anointed through the power of your Spirit to deliver to us the truth concerning your salvation, to bring the right teaching and the right knowledge of your kingdom and to be the one who intercedes for us and atones for every sin of ours, even sacrificing his own life. Lord, often we despair of the injustice that we see in the world. We despair of the violence of it. We despair of the corruption of it of the misery and the difficulty that our sins bring, the harms that are done to us and the hurts that are done against us and those that we've done against others. We despair of broken relationships. We despair of the brokenness in our families. We despair of brokenness in our lives. Real and true trouble, real and true hurts, And those, Lord, who are in positions of authority, turning aside to the right and to the left, turning after their own pleasure, turning after their own gain and their own interest, it is a wonder to us that you have provided Jesus, the true and righteous King, to lead us. And you have anointed him and prepared a reign for him that will never end. We thank you, Lord, for fulfilling these promises of which we've read to send truly someone who can go before us and who leads in righteousness and integrity, who truly is the Prince of Peace and brings not more of the same, more of the same trouble, more of the same corruption, more of the same twisted and perverted thinking, proud and wicked thinking, but Jesus who brings the humility and the purity and the perfection of your kingdom to its fullness. 
What joy it is for us to know him in his righteousness and to receive the gift of that righteousness as our own. Lord, we cannot attain to that perfection in our own strength. And we are exasperated at the thought of filling all of the demands of your law on our own or finding our own pathway to salvation with our own wisdom or cleverness, you, Lord, have sent Jesus to secure our salvation and to lead us forward without losing one whom you've given to him. And this is all our comfort and all of our hope. So, Lord, we confess as we worship tonight that we have not so much reached out for you as you have reached out for us. And Lord, we have not so much taken hold of you and grasped onto you as you, Lord, have reached out with the strength of your arm and you have taken us as your own people. And that is for us the comfort and the assurance and the gift uh, of our lives, the prize of our lives in Jesus that we celebrate So fill us with that joy and give us that hope and that peace as we testify to everyone, Lord, that you are our God and that you have made us to be your own sons and daughters and taken us as a people for your own possession, a flock for your own care. Lord, this is what you have become to us, the Savior and the Deliverer through your Son, Jesus Christ, our true Father in heaven. Hear our prayer, Lord, and encourage us with that thought. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to receive our offering at this time as we sing number 311. Number 311, we'll stand and sing 311, and the deacons will receive our gifts.
begin reading at verse 1, focusing on verses 13 and following. Matthew chapter 2, the first book of the New Testament, beginning at verse 1. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came uh, from the east, came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them, where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. When you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it, was, until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. So far from God's holy word, dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, this story moves quickly. We read this morning uh, portion, but now it's sort of we pick up right away. It appears uh, that the wise men departed, and soon afterward, maybe even the same day, possibly that very night, the Lord's angel told Joseph 
of this life-threatening danger in a dream. And by the angel's warning command, Joseph took God's son to Egypt, fulfilling everything that the Lord had foretold through the prophets and securing our hope as he obeyed. We see this, uh, this obedience to God's warning, Joseph taking Jesus to Egypt, particularly there uh, being counted and, and called God's, you know, God's son and sort of taking the place of Israel. And that's sort of part of our focus and understanding of what God is doing as he fulfills those prophecies. Now, maybe you remember from this morning, it sort of stood out as we thought about it, you know, how far Bethlehem was from Jerusalem. And the answer was, uh, you know, a piddly amount, right? But six miles from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. And now, where before it was sort of an indictment of the priest, they didn't bother to go see the Messiah. It's only six miles away. Well, now we have a different feeling about that short distance. Now, death is only six miles away. From, you know, between Herod and this child, the child that God uh, has sent into the world as the new king and as our savior and Messiah. So this is you know, suddenly a, a different way of thinking about how near the threat really is. This is sort of like being in a tent you know, in some wilderness and having only the thin tent material between you and the bear or between you and the wolf uh, outside. It's no real protection, it's very close. Well, it wouldn't be several weeks uh, or months before Herod realized he had been tricked. You know, it might only be a day or two. It might even only be hours before his hatred flared up to wipe out, you know, the hope that God had sent in Jesus to wipe out this threat, to wipe out his king, to wipe out the son. And this is what we're seeing now, the apostle you know, the apostles spoke about the threat of the devil rather like a prowling animal, like a lion, right? Peter taught that the devil prowls like a lion seeking whom he may devour. This is 1 Peter 5, 8. And we know as we look through the scripture and as we think about Jesus and his temptations and as we think about the opposition that he faced and even his enemies gnashing their teeth at him, there's this, there's this very sort of wicked and visceral response to him we, we get the impression in the scripture in many ways the devil has never wanted anything more but then to you know, tear apart the salvation of Christ, if that were possible, and to use every tool at his disposal to crush God's king and to devour his followers, his sheep, his church. Again, if it were possible, if it was, if it was within his hand to do, and knowing this threat, uh, we have to think differently. We see it at the beginning of Jesus' life, and we see it during his ministry, and we see it in his crucifixion and death. We see the threat um, of the devil, the threat of sin, and the curse of death for what they are. Very strong, very real, and without the power of God. And without God sending you know, out his arm to, you know, for our protection, what can we do? We really need to think differently about the Christian life. This is why the apostles taught that every day we're to think uh, as those who are in a battle. Every day think as those who have to wear the full armor of God. And in that way stand firm. And in addition... 
We also have to be wise according to the teaching of the apostles and know when to flee, when to obey God, not, you know, not by battling, but by escape. And there's something interesting about this here as we see how God uh, works his way uh, in this story. Uh, warning Joseph and warning again, you know, the right path to take and what he's doing. But this is something that we're seeing from the very beginning in the life of Jesus. And we have to be wise about that thought. I know how Satan longs to tear away our hope and to crush, you know, to crush God's purposes if he could. And why is it that knowing this and seeing how deadly the threat is, I toy around with deadly sins. Why, why is it that I toy around with dangers that are life-threatening and the curse that threatens my soul? I know this, but it's, it's hard to, to realize it in my life and live accordingly so that we're constantly admonished in God's word. Instead of, instead of guarding carefully and watchfully, instead of fleeing from sin like the apostles taught it, we're arrogant and we're... We're casual about sin, and we treat it as a small thing, even though we know, you know, we know sexual sin, you know, suffocates our spiritual life. We know anger is sort of a consuming fire. We know, uh, we know that envy would dominate our minds. We know that, that all, all these sins have sharp teeth against us, and that the devil himself, himself prowls for us, and that death is a great enemy to us. This is something that we see here in this, uh, in this passage, and yet we, we take a casual attitude about it. Christians, um, as we look at passages like these, we have to remember right, the, the, the threats that we see in the life of Jesus and what that means for us as well. You know, God says in his word, Jesus preached, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Right? The struggle is life and death. And this is the way that Jesus lived. Even before he grew up, it was already a life and death struggle and a dangerous one. And we have to take that to heart and do whatever it takes to guard our hearts and our lives in light of him and to think on the kind of life that he lived and the battle that it was and be shrewd also. When the Lord here acts to protect his true son, he saves our life with him, right? He saves our common hope with him. God would not allow Satan to hold back his hand or take away our hope. And if Joseph and his family were six miles from death, God still guarded them and directed them to safety. And he hastily picks up and moves some, you know, hundred miles away to Egypt. This is out of the reach of the enemy at the time. Egypt is another Roman province at this time. So Palestine is under Herod the king. Egypt is under another administration uh, as another province. So his power and his influence can't really follow them there. And they have to stay there until Herod's death. From the time of Genesis until the time of Christ's total victory over death and hell, the scripture is following, right, the way that God protects our hope 
the way that God preserves his Christ, the line of Christ, like we read in chapter 1, and the hope that we have in him as our Savior. Matthew teaches us to look for all those threads connecting in Jesus. And he recounts this event specifically in the fulfillment of the prophet Hosea. Uh, it's chapter 2, verse 15, when he talks about the fulfillment of prophecy. You know, Out of Egypt, I called my son. We always want to pay special attention when the Bible interprets itself, right? Matthew interpreting the prophet. And he's teaching us how to read and how to think about the Old Testament. Hosea recounted how God had faithfully brought his people out of Egypt in the Exodus. That's ancient history now, right? Going back, um, you know, Matthew has already sort of given us a primer in ancient history, right? The history of our salvation. Now he's reaching out, right, for this event. The Exodus, one of the defining moments in the history of the nation. No Jew could ever forget that God at that time called Israel his firstborn son and brought him out against a powerful enemy. Now Jesus, God's son, is here. And God, again, is sort of repeating this history, but now wrapping it all into Jesus, focusing all attention on him. Out of Egypt I called my son would resonate in their minds, but now it's taken you know, in a new direction or a direction that they wouldn't have expected. In the rescue of Jesus' life and his deliverance, we see the salvation of Israel. That's Matthew's intention. That's a powerful thing. That he's teaching his audience and he's teaching us that Jesus is the true Israel, the true son. And if we have any interest, right, in the, in the salvation that God is bringing, freeing his people from slavery, then we would pay close attention to the Christ that he sent. And that's what Matthew was doing for us yet again, right? He's done this a number of times already in chapter 1 and chapter 2. And this is part of the way we have to train our minds to think about our salvation on a small scale and on a large scale and how the historical and the very powerful sort of physical acts of salvation from God, his miracles and his powerful deliverances in history, the exodus, the, the Goliaths, you know, snatching his saints out of the jaws of lions, like is, you know, recounted often uh, in summary ways in the Psalms and, and in other places in the scripture. These are as real as the spiritual and, and sort of unseen work that God has in mind to do for our deliverance. How do we picture, if we don't understand the scripture, how do we picture what it's like for God to snatch our souls from the jaws of death and hell, except that we look again and again and we see he snatched them out of the hands of Pharaoh and said, I, you know, my firstborn son is mine and struck, you know, and struck the Egyptians, and except that here God snatches away the life of his son from danger out of the hands of this vicious ruler, Herod. This is... This is what the Bible does for us. This is, this is how we come to know and understand God's intentions. He would do again with his own son something that we need to understand. If our souls are ever to be delivered from darkness, if our sins are ever to be removed so that the weight of them doesn't crush us 
and drag us down and curse. God delivered the nation from oppression, and now the deliverance that he has in mind is now with a view to our hearts. He's going to deliver his people truly from their sins through this Savior. So he blunted the anger of bitter enemies and carried his son through danger unscathed. This is another lesson for us. As, as, much, as, we, as much as we have danger in you know, sin, you know, our casual attitude towards sins or the kind of pride that threatens our souls, there's, there's another very real lesson for us here, and it's one that's full of comfort that we have nothing to fear in Christ, nothing to fear through faith in God's power from men and from their words, from those who are powerful enemies against us. God is able to do great things, and we see, we see both of those here, the very real threat, but also the very real power of God for salvation. God is able to break the hearts of those that we thought would never give in. God is able to blunt and to turn you know, the anger of bitter enemies who seek our very lives. God is able to open doors where there seems to be no way. And even if it kills us to keep our faith and our trust in him, he raises the dead. And this is part of the, you know, the intensity of the gospel message that we need to understand. And there's something vicious and deadly going on here. And it continues through the life of Jesus all the way to the cross. And God still brings life. And he still brings victory out of it. And that is a wonder as we read the story of Jesus in the gospel. That God is able to do what no one else can do. We can't be paralyzed anymore by the fear of men, fear of people, and what they think of us, what they'll say. The shame uh, of following Jesus and owning him before others. Fear of loss, lo what loss of position, loss of money, loss of standing. God has the power to bring us through all of it. He never abandons us. And though we may come close to death on the one side... And though, though we're only a breath away from death on the other side, nothing can harm us when God acts for our safety. He promised, I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. We're seeing it in action in the way that we read this passage. Those who are in Christ are counted as truly secure, truly safe, the very children of God. And when we are bonded to him, and this is the key to the gospel, when we are bonded to Christ by faith, we come under the fatherly protection of the heavenly God. We come under his care. And Jesus is the very head and we are the body and counted as the true spiritual Israel. This, is, this goes on to be fleshed out all through the scriptures. It's very powerful. Our adoption and our bond to Jesus and God points to him and said, this is my true son, right? This is the one that I have called to be the savior and the leader and the king and the true heart of my purposes for deliverance. We see 
We see in verse 16, Herod's anger reached its boiling point. He ordered the death of all the boys who fit the time frame which he learned from the wise men. We're getting uh, uh, you know, echoes of Egypt and of the Exodus you know, from Herod. Put them, you know, all the baby boys of, of Israel, put them to death. We have sort of the same command. All the male children in Bethlehem who were two years and under would be slaughtered. And, and it says also sort of in that region, you know, in that area, you know, some estimate 20, 30. It's hard to tell how, you know, how many people uh, did he order the death? Uh, you know, how many young boys? Herod is very twisted in that way, uh, a tool of the devil, calculating what he hoped would secure his wicked purpose and executing this awful plan. When it comes to the world's rage against Jesus, there's no limit. There's nothing that's out of bounds. The opposition of the world to Christ. This is something we need to know and believe, but then find our comfort in God's deliverance. Herod's cruelty is a prime example of this. You know, we, we mentioned earlier, he executed members of his own family that he thought were a threat to his power. And it was nothing to him to order the deaths of these children if he felt it was necessary to secure his position. The darkness of the world is very dark, very deep. And this is what the word is talking about when it talks about the people in darkness. It's not, it's not a clean thing. It's a deadly thing. It's not a safe thing. It's a very ugly thing. The death and the curse of the world is very dark. But God protects and preserves the life of his son, and with him our hope and our salvation. Though, Herod's mur uh, you know, though Herod is murderous, you know, God, God is fulfilling his purpose. You see that not even his rage is outside of God's control. That's something for us to consider as we look at the next prophecy there in verse 18, a voice from Ramah weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted because they are no more. This is an ancient prophecy that now Matthew, again, is connecting to the events of the life of Jesus. That's something, that's something for us to consider, God's wisdom, God's power. Even, even the most wicked, corrupted enemy of his, God had long understood, right? God had long prepared and God fulfilled his purpose even through uh, these awful events that we see. This is the kind of control that he has that causes us to say his ways are higher than our ways. His purposes and his plans and his wisdom higher than ours. And you see that reflected uh, in Matthew's understanding of these events. Fulfilling it in another prophecy, will you remember Rachel? She was the wife of Jacob, that is of Israel, one of the patriarchs a mother of the nation. And she's pictured here now in grief for her people who in Jeremiah's day were destroyed and marched off into exile. So now we're, we're jumping forward with this prophecy to a different time in their history. Now they've already, they've already been in the land and they're being scraped out of it and taken into exile. Matthew mentions the exile in chapter 1, right? This many generations, from Abraham to David, 
this many from David to what? To the deportation to Babylon, and this many after the exile to Christ. You know, Matthew is very purposeful in the way that he's teaching about the life of Jesus. She's pictured in grief for the people of that day, the time that they were ripped out of the land. And the grief is that God's people are so beaten down and so crushed that maybe they won't recover. Maybe they can never recover. And that's how she's pictured as weeping. It's a very hopeless image. And it's a woman refusing to be comforted. So it's hopeless. There's against this kind of, of hatred and against this kind of crushing weight, is it possible that we could ever recover? That's the question or that's, that's the attitude uh, with which she's pictured. You know, my people are no more. And she's famous, right, famous for naming her child in a hopeless way, right? She named, she named her son Ben-Oni, the son of my trouble. And that son was renamed Benjamin, right, the youngest of the 12 brothers, right, the, um, the patriarchs of the nation. She has no comfort as she weeps hopelessly over those who have perished. And that's the picture here that Matthew points to. And we find hope that comes from God and from him only. God's might and God's wisdom keeps hope alive. That is, the true son of God lives, and he lives to fulfill God's words and God's promises and God rescues him for that purpose. He will do all that God has sent him to do. And though Rachel's pictured as weeping for those people, he saved a remnant of them, even to this day. And there's a son for David and a king for God's people. This is, this is where you know, we've come, right? So that we're able to say now, in truth, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light and no amount of hatred and no amount of murderous, murderous intent and no power of men has been able to snuff it out. If you have seen the light of Christ, then you cannot remain the same because God gives hope against real trouble, even against our death and the day of, of destruction. Even when our troubles are prowling on one side and prowling on the other, so that the apostle taught this way about the hope of the gospel and the way that they brought the gospel. He said, we are, we are hard pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. The coming of Jesus is for people who are like, you know, up to their chin in trouble and for people who are, you know, sort of with their nose just above the water, people who are counted as in the valley of the shadow of death. This is not an isolated way of thinking in the scripture. People who are, are close to collapse and yet they find that because of the power of God, their hope cannot be snatched away. God is faithful. His love is steadfast. He will not allow 
his people to be snatched away to their destruction. And so the apostle says in that same chapter, 2 Corinthians 4, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. We may weep and mourn, but our comfort is alive, saved alive through Jesus. Our God and our Father is too great even for the greatest by the world, you know, by the standard of the world, a, a great man like Herod to challenge. It's no threat when compared to the power of God. Our Heavenly Father will not allow hatred and opposition to steal away the saving hope that has dawned on us in Jesus. The very Christ, the Son, has come into the world. To believe in Jesus Christ, God's firstborn Son, is the way and the only way to become true sons and daughters with him. He pours out to us what Romans 8 calls the spirit of adoption, where his fellow heirs... The world is mourning for lack of comfort, scrambling for true identity. The darkness and the futility and the mixed up sense of self, you can see people grappling with it. And you can see them searching for salvation somewhere, for help somewhere, for, for some avenue, uh, for a foundation, for peace but like we read uh, in summary about Jesus the Savior, salvation is found in him and no one else. It's futility without him. It's deadly out there without him. Our hope for life and for a future is not going to be found flopping around in the ways of this world. It's going to be found by repenting of our darkness and of our searching elsewhere and turning to the true light and to the true center of God's purpose for salvation. It's turning to Jesus. This is the message of the gospel, as plain as it can be told, that God has sent for us, and it's time to turn to him and find life and find the hope that can't be God elsewhere and the light that can't, that can't come unless it comes from him to repent of our sinful ways, to repent of our darkness and believe God's Son, His Savior. And with Him, we have this incredible comfort. What hatred can we face that God cannot protect us? What murderous threat? We see here the, sort of the snapping jaws coming for Christ, coming for our hope. Is, is there any enemy more fierce, more murderous than we have not already seen plainly in the life of Jesus, suffering the torments and taunts and even death on the cruel cross, the curse that he suffered. Is there a deeper threat? And he has the victory. He's faced them for us. What deeper darkness than the kind that we've read here that he has taken on and sacrificed to cover? What losses can undo us when even dying cannot take away our hope for eternal life? Jesus gave his life willingly 
so that ours would never be destroyed. God sent him for real hope, real salvation. The hope of this world ends at a gravestone. But our hope cannot be destroyed. And that's real hope indeed that goes beyond this life to eternity. We have to live this way and we have to tell others that no power can hold back the hand of the Lord. His son has come down to this earth for our salvation, going even to death. And he is the one that can take us to the glory of God's kingdom. Let the whole world know that God's true son has come. And everyone who believes in him will share in his life. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, as we read your word, we see the deep threats that stood against us. We see the kind of, the kind of vicious enemies and the snapping teeth uh, as though the very lion, the devil prowling himself, is there to destroy us. But we also see the way of salvation. Jesus has said, as we take up our cross and follow him, that he has laid out the pathway in front of us, that we're to follow, that he has opened the way for salvation. And though we look to the right and we look to the left, we see ruin and darkness and destruction, and the threat of our sins is very real. We have, through him, the safety, the forgiveness, the security of life without end, atonement for our sins, a real and true future that can be found with no one else. So, Lord, we thank you for this gift that you provided a way through the darkness of this world to the very kingdom of your perfection. We thank you, Lord, that you have saved our hope and preserved it against every threat. And that Jesus, even when it seemed that that hope was gone and he was buried in the grave, came out again victorious. This is the hope that we have come to know and believe. Lord, bless us to walk with him every day and finally to see him face to face. Hear our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to turn now to some carols as we come to the close of our service. And you'll see them there. They're going to be in the Trinity Psalter hymnal that you have in front of you. And uh, we had a big box of candles in the back, but maybe you came, if you came through this door and you need to get one, now's a good time to get one. And we're going to light our candles and lower the lights a little bit. And we're going to sing these three songs, 318, 315, and 319. We'll sing the first three stanzas, but then we'll pause for the closing benediction, uh, and then we'll sing that final verse. So I'm going to light a candle, and I would ask a few uh, to come forward, and, and uh, we'll, we'll pass on the light to one another. And uh, as soon as we get close to ready, we'll sing, and usually we'll stand together. I would say let's stand forward. We want to be close to each other as we sing. You know, caroling is meant to be uh, close. So we can fill all this space in the front, uh, we can fill the front pews, on the, we can fill the sides. Um, uh, you want to attend to the wax, you know, attend to children. Um, but, uh, but that's what we plan to do. So I'd invite everyone forward. If you, ha if you don't have a candle, now's the time to get one. 
and uh, we'll begin our singing together. All right, let's uh, let's pass our light light along. takes an extra second. There we go. Thank you. Our first song will be 318, Angels We Have Heard on High.
first three stanzas will pause for the benediction and then we'll conclude with that fourth verse. 319.